I'm Elise Hugh. You're listening to TED Talks Daily. The prolonged pandemic has taken a toll on all of us in so many ways. Today, we're featuring a conversation between leadership expert Simon Sinek and head of TED Chris Anderson, which helps us to better make sense of this moment and take stock. How do we better take care of ourselves and connect or reconnect with one another? I found this talk to be a balm during what's still such a disorienting time. This is a shortened version of their full conversation, which was recorded at a TED membership event in 2021. If you want to listen to the full hour, head over to our other podcast, The TED Interview. Simon, I'll start us off by by saying, I mean, here we are, look, after a year of the pandemic, um, probably one of the most extraordinary experiences any of us have had. What do you think the unexpected psychological carryovers might be? I mean, do you think we've, we've kind of, part of me thinks that people have got more fragile, that we've, it's almost like we, we, there's a sort of learned timidity. It, do, have, have, you, have you seen any evidence of that or how would you characterize it? I, I think we've definitely all become much more aware of mental health and that it's a real thing and that uh, mental health affects strong and healthy people. Um, we all suffered trauma uh, during COVID. Um, some of us dealt with it earlier. Some of us dealt with it later. Some of us are still dealing with it, um, but nobody escapes it. When COVID first started, you know, many of us had to pivot our organizations, had to pivot our businesses very quickly. And so I, like many others, we went into mission mode. And I called a friend of mine who is active duty military and I asked him a very simple question. How do I compartmentalize my emotions so that I can stay focused on the mission? And he gave me a very stern warning. He said, you can't. He said, we can compartmentalize our emotions for only a short period of time, but no one, no one escapes the trauma of combat. And he said, you may not even experience the trauma while you're in it. You may not experience it when you first come home. You may experience it months later. He says, I experience it four or five months after I get home. So immediately I hung up the phone and called all my A-type personality friends and said, okay, we think we're good, but we're going to get hit by this at some point. And we made a deal that when we started to feel off our game, we would call each other um, uh, safe space. And we made another deal that there would be no crying alone, that if you had to cry, you picked up the phone and you called somebody. Well, about four or five months into COVID, I started to feel off my game and I didn't know what was going on. And so I called that same friend in the military and I asked no leading questions. I simply asked him, tell me what your symptoms are when you suffer the trauma when you come home from combat. And he said, well, number one, he falls out of his sleep pattern. He said he starts going to bed late for no reason and doesn't want to get up in the morning. And I thought to myself, yep. He says he has some unproductive days and he comes up with an excuse like, it's okay. You know, you deserve a rest. It's fine. But then he has another and another and another. And I thought to myself, yep. And he said he becomes very antisocial where he doesn't want to ask for help and he definitely doesn't want to talk to anybody. And I thought to myself, yep. And I realized what I was going through was trauma. And I was afraid to use the D word, depression, for fear that that was some sort of diagnosis. Um, and I think a lot of people are afraid of that word. Um, but that's exactly what I was going through. I was going through lowercase d depression. And I followed the rule that we set with our friends and I, and I called people because one of the things I asked my friend is like, how do you overcome it? He said, you have to force yourself back into a sleep pattern and you have to force yourself to call friends and ask for help. And so I think one of the things that comes out of COVID that I, is we recognized just the importance of human connection. You know, in this fast paced digital world, 
we kidded ourselves to think that we had connections just because we were connected. But it was amazing to see when COVID started, regardless of someone's age or a technological competency, we all picked up the phone. Like young people were talking to each other. And I think that intense craving for a human voice and human touch, I think we were reminded just how fragile we are as human beings. That, that phrase you mentioned, no crying alone, that's powerful. Did you, I mean, did, forgive I me asking, did, did you cry with someone? Yes. Um, I, I followed my, my own counsel to my friends. And when I had to cry, when I was overwhelmed, I, I picked up the phone and I just cried. Um, and I had friends call me and do the same. And I was um, healing in that. The most important thing that came from it was that we, we didn't, none of us felt alone. And there's intense safety, that amazing sense of safety that we all desire as human beings. You know, you, you can't feel safe when, when you're vulnerable. Like that's when we need it the most. But, but you have to build those relationships. You know, you build those relationships in the happy times and the good times where you, you think you're strong and think you're great. You know, you, it's, it's very hard to, to start building those relationships in the moment of crisis. And I think that's sort of, it's, it's, a, it's a lesson for leadership, quite frankly, you, you know, which is you can't judge the quality of a crew by how a ship performs in calm waters. You judge the quality of a crew by how a ship performs in rough waters. But the time in calm waters is when you're building relationship and when you're building trust. And you don't really actually know if you have trusting relationships and trusting teams and loving relationships until the crisis strikes. And I think I heard this from a lot of people. When COVID happened, they commented on how they realized who their real friends were. Some people kind of fell by the wayside. It was nothing personal. It's just like we didn't call each other and we were still, you know, weren't angry or anything. And there are some people who came out of the woodwork to check in on us and those friendships flourished. And that's what I mean. That's, that's the, it takes, it takes hardship for those friendships and that trust to really bear fruit. And, uh, but that's, that's why we have to invest in people when we're doing well and we don't think we need anybody. And I think we forget that. I think we forget I mean, that. What would, you, what would you say to someone who has realized that, that they're in this moment, what's been a really difficult year, and they actually don't feel that there's someone they could, for example, you know, pick up the phone and cry with? Is it hopeless for them until, until this, this passes? Or what, what, what would you say to them? There, there is an irony. There's an irony in, in when we need help. And when I was writing the book, Leaders Eat Last, I had the opportunity to spend some time with and, and visit Alcoholics Anonymous. And it is a remarkable organization. And we're, many of us are familiar with the 12-step program. And many of us are familiar with the first step, which is admitting you have a problem. But then it's, it's the other 11 steps that also matter. And Alcoholics Anonymous knows that if you master the first 11 steps, but not the 12th, you are likely to succumb to the disease. But if you master the 12 steps, you're more likely to overcome the disease. That 12th step is to help another alcoholic. It's service. And so there's a great irony when, when we need help to actually help someone who's struggling with the same thing as us, and it is the most healing thing we can do. So it, you know, if we need someone to cry with, it's to offer the shoulder for somebody else to cry with. If, if, if we're feeling lonely, it's to, it's to be there for someone else who's struggling with loneliness. And this, is, this is, goes way beyond these subjects, which is if we're looking for love to help somebody else find love, if we're looking for the job we love to help somebody else find the job that they love, and there's tremendous value in service. And the number of people, and you hear about these things all the time, you talk to people why they chose to go in the profession they went into, especially if they're in the service profession. Like let's say they, uh, somebody is a counselor for trauma. And you say, why, why did you go into this profession? You're like, well, when I was younger, I suffered a trauma and somebody was there to counsel me and I decided I wanted to commit my life to doing that for others. This is what happens when, with service. 
And we forget just because we live in a modern world, we're actually a, a very old fashioned machine. You know, he, the human animal is a legacy machine living in a modern world. And we still work the same way we used to. And we desperately need each other to survive and thrive as much as we did when we were living in, in huts and small tribes of 150 people. And so, so service is the thing. It sounds like even for someone who's not feeling like depressed or on the edge right now, but it, a good checklist question for them to ask is, is, is there someone I could reach out to actually, that there may be other people who are in a much worse situation. And maybe, maybe there is a call I can make that would be incredibly valuable to that person and build, help build a relationship with the future. Yeah. Are you okay? Is the best is, you know, how are you? Is it's sort of, you know, a friend of mine, who, who, George Flynn, he says his test for a, a leader is, is um, if they ask you how you're doing, they actually care about the answer. Hmm. Uh, and I, I really like that. Okay. I, I, boy, I could talk with you for hours about this, but we're going to go to some questions now. So here's a question from Kayum. Um, if there is no way to get back to normal, then are we on the right path of building new normal already? Or can you help us with a blueprint that new normal should be based on? So blueprint, no. Guidance is yes. I think that humanity has to be, you know, we, we have to remember that humanity matters. And when I say humanity, I don't mean big H humanity, I mean little H humanity, our humanity. Um, when COVID first happened, um, so many leaders um, leaned on their humanity. Um, whether they were effect, effective or ineffective leaders prior to COVID, many of them picked up the phone and said, are you okay? They called their teams just to check in on them. Or they called their friends to say, are you okay? How are you? Well, this we don't need a global pandemic to do that. That's called good leadership, and we should be doing that all the time. And we should be encouraging those in our charge to do the same for those in their charge. You know, the, the, the hierarchy can, can still be effective that way. I hope that remains. I, I hope that remains. I hope the use of the telephone remains that we don't just go back to, to texting all the time. Uh, I, I hope that, that putting our phones away and having family dinner remains. Um, mm. it's, it's the rem I think there's a lot of kids that will actually come through this with stronger relationships with their siblings if they have them and stronger relationship with, with their parents because they, they had so much time together. And mm. kids who may have struggled prior because they weren't getting the kind of attention they needed because their parents were so busy with work, you know, even if mom or dad are, are busy on a, on a Zoom call all day, that hour that they would ordinarily just like go get a cup of coffee or something that they could focus on their kid. I think a lot of kids actually will come out of this and kids are remarkably adaptable. They're mm. remarkably adaptable. Um, here's a question from Marius. Um, could you give us some tips on how to discover ah, why? Uh, absolutely. I'll give you a little exercise um, that you can do with your friends. Uh, it's called the friends exercise. Find a friend you love and who loves you. Uh, the person who, if they called you at three o'clock in the morning, you take the call and you know they would do the same for you. Do not do this with a sibling. Do not this, do this with a spouse. Do not do this with a, with a parent. Those relationships are too close. Do it with a best friend. And go up to them and ask the, the simple question, why are we friends? And they're going to look at you like you're crazy because you're asking them to put into words a feeling. You're asking to use a part of the brain, the neocortex, that doesn't uh, control feelings uh, and, uh, and to put the thing that exists in the limbic brain into language, which it doesn't do. And so it's actually a very difficult question. They're going to say, I don't know. It's not that they don't know. It's that they can't put it into words. So ironically, you stop asking the question why and you start asking the question what, because what is a rational question, right? What is it about me that I know that you would be there for me no matter what? And they, they, they won't know how to answer it. They'll start describing you. I don't know. You're funny. I trust you. You've always been there for me. You play devil's advocate. 
Good. That's the definition of a friend. What specifically is it about me that I know you'd be there for me no matter what? And they'll continue to do the same. They'll keep trying to describe you. You keep playing devil's advocate. That's the definition of a best friend. You get the idea. Eventually, they'll give up. Eventually, they'll give up and they'll start describing themselves. And they'll say, and this is what my friends said to me when I did it with them. They said, I don't know, Simon. I don't even have to talk to you. I could just sit in the same room as you and I feel inspired. And I got goosebumps. In fact, I'm getting them right now. They will articulate the value you have in their life and you will have some sort of emotional response, goosebumps, or you'll well up. Because what they're telling you is your why. Your why is the thing you give to the world. You can do this with multiple friends and they will say almost exactly, if not the exact same thing, because that is your why. That is the thing you give to the world. So it'll, it may not give you the exact language, but it'll put you squarely in the ballpark for what your why is. Here's an anonymous question. I have a friend who is certainly, or who's currently struggling with depression and is just not like he used to be. I don't know what to say to him. He's actually annoyed by the question, how are you doing? Yeah. How can I offer my help? So I, I, one of the things I learned by accident a couple of years ago is sometimes statements work better than questions because questions people can avoid, right? How are you? This is what we all did during COVID. How are you? Fine. I'm fine. Everyone's fine, right? And then, the, then what do you do with that? And so um, try making a statement, right? Something's wrong. Something's different. You're not the same. I'm worried about you. Make statements, and it leaves very little room for somebody to divert the conversation. You're not the person I know. And, and do it with love and empathy. Um, and the most important thing, don't show up to solve the problem. The, the, especially when you're, when you're starting to have a difficult conversation, you don't show up to solve the problem. You show up to create an environment in which they'd be willing to open up to you. That's, that's, the, only, that's the only goal. So um, try a statement instead of a question. So here's, here's the last question. Uh, I'm gonna ask this for me. What do you mean, Simon, when you say that everyone is a leader? Leadership has nothing to do with rank or title. I know many people who sit at the highest levels of organizations who are not leaders. We do as they tell us because they have authority over us, but we don't trust them and we wouldn't follow them. And yet I also know many people who sit at very low levels of organizations that have no formal rank and no formal authority. And yet they've made the choice to look after the person to the left of them and look after the person to the right of them. And we would trust them and follow them anywhere. Leadership is the responsibility to see those around us rise. It's the responsibility to take care of those around us. That's what leadership is. It's not about being in charge. It's about taking care of those in our charge. Um, and any, the only thing title and authority allow you to do is lead with greater scale. Every single one of us has the opportunity to be the leader we wish we had. Every single one of us. Simon, thank you. Thank you so much for spending this time with us. Thanks, Chris. I really appreciate it. Take care of yourself. Take care of each other. TED Talks Daily is hosted by me, Elise Hugh, and produced by TED. Theme music is from Allison Layton Brown, and our mixer is Christopher Fazy Bogan. We record the talks at TED events we host or from TEDx events, which are organized independently by volunteers all over the world. And we'd love to hear from you. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or email us at podcasts at TED.com.